0: Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show, we cover What may be the greatest movie of the year so far? The movie Past Lives. When I talk to its director, Celine Song, we review the unpredictably popular Nun series with the return of The Nun 2 in the company of Chris Wasser. Plus, Paddy Cullivan chats about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday, At 6pm here on News Talk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I have a tiny cold, sorry to say. Hopefully you're not getting too much nasal interference. I'm doing my best. Sipping tea. It's only a small cold. Nothing to worry about. I don't know. It's something to do with this unseasonably hot weather. My body can't take it or something. Or, I don't know. Busy week last week. Uh, Kids returned to school and work was busy. And it's almost like I woke up Sunday morning and the body said, You know what, pal? we need to take a breather here so it gave me a cold you see I'm arguing with my body there I'm not I'm not one I need to be more in unison with my body there should be no duality between body and person what the hell am I talking about who knows I have a little cold that's a long way of saying that but I'm in great spirits because you're listening to this show and we're talking about the movies and TV and we heard this week that Barbie is not over, not only the biggest grossing movie of the year so far in Ireland it's the highest grossing movie of all time in Ireland um, Uh, Which you know I'm just delighted People are going back To the cinema I like that movie We gave it three stars On this show I I don't think it's the Greatest thing Since sliced bread And I think it was Largely an exercise In marketing And they were flogging A doll At the end of the day Some interesting ideas In it Some great performances Uh, Margot Robbie Ryan Gosling Excellent Uh, But look You know, Box Office doesn't lie, people are continuing to love that movie, as they are Oppenheimer. However, my friends, I would like to posit that the best movie of the year so far is this. There's a word in Korean,
0: Inyon. It means providence or fate. But it's specifically about relationships between people. I think it comes from Buddhism and reincarnation. It's an iñon. if two strangers even walk by each other in the street, and their clothes accidentally brush. Because it means there must have been something between them in their past lives.
1: Now that was a clip from past lives. And I want to tell you guys and girls, since I saw that movie two weeks ago I think I've thought about it every day since this has been getting a huge buzz since it was shown in one of the festivals it might have been Venice or Cannes I'm not too sure or it could have even been Sundance in fact it was Sundance back in January people have been slowly raving about this movie it is from the director Celine Song who's actually a playwright who moved to uh, from South Korea to Canada when she was 12 and then to New York in her 20s and has been writing very successful plays for the last 10 years and this is her feature debut the film basically follows two children into adulthood a young girl called nora and Sung, who are two schoolhood friends and maybe their sweethearts we're not entirely sure and nora goes to canada when she's about 12 and leaves Sung. then they reconnect in their 20s when she's looking for people from home to stay in touch with and then they begin a kind of skype relationship and then they meet again about 10 years later. So it follows them for 24 years' time. All the while, Nora gets married. I should say, Nora is played by Greta Lee. Uh, Sung is played by Cho Yo. And Nora is married uh, when we meet her in the final act to uh, an American actor called John McGarro. And the movie begins with us seeing these three people in a bar and someone else wondering, what are they doing there? And it's this gorgeous study of a childhood friendship and what it becomes over a 24-year period. And I don't want to say too much more about it, because it is the type of movie you just need to go and see. It reminded me, in part of things like Brief Encounter and Lost in Translation, but it's better than that. It is an absolutely beautiful, simple movie about what it's like to be close to someone when you're young and how that might change as life goes on. And I'll leave it at that because I don't want to spoil it for you. Plus, you're about to hear my interview with Celine Song, who made this glorious movie called Past Lives, which is on release from this Thursday, the 7th of September. It is in cinemas. It's absolutely wonderful. It's directed and written by Celine Song. Now, Celine Song, as I say, is a playwright. She did this bizarre thing during COVID where she did a Chekhov play, The Seagull, through the prison of Sims, that video game incredible stuff. Anyway, this is her debut feature. And it's hard to believe it's her debut feature because it's an incredible movie. I was saying to someone, maybe a little pretentiously the other day, look, it's kind of simple. You want to make a good movie. You have a good story. You have two good actors or three good actors and you have a good director. Do you think maybe that's why this movie is is affecting people so much that it's it has those things?
2: Well, I think that the what what I've really found in uh, the audiences coming to the film itself is that I think some of it is about uh, how they actually feel personally connected to the story itself. Mm. I think that it doesn't actually have a lot of you know VFX or anything, uh, that wild. Um, but I think that because it is such an uh, intimate thing, or it's a thing really about these three people who are ordinary that you might run into in the street. I think that that alone is actually enough for uh, audiences to come to it and fall in love with it.
1: Is it true that this is largely or or in part the launching point was your life and that you were in a bar with this childhood sweetheart and then also your current husband?
2: Yes, and I think I it was in this uh, bar in New York City uh, sitting there in between these two men who uh, hold uh, different parts of my own life. And I think that I was translating between them, not just in language, but also in culture. And at one point, I actually realized that uh, they're also, I was translating between two parts of my own uh, self. And then I felt like something really special was happening uh to me and to all three of us. And then I think that really was the launching point. So it really started from a very uh personal and like a very real thing you know that happened that mm. is autobiographical and i think from there uh the idea for the film really was uh was born
1: so when i was observing uh the, the central relationship between Nora and I just want to pronounce this correctly, song. that's the Perfect. correct. OK, excellent. Yeah. So far, so good. You know, I was thinking of other movies came into my mind, like Brief Encounter, Lost in Translation, and I was even thinking of the book Wuthering Heights, the whole Kathy Heathcliff thing. And I, I'm looking forward for my wife to see the movie as well and see what she thinks, but I imagine their relationship Have you been surprised by people's take on it? Because and I don't want to give any spoilers, but is it romantic? Is it that they own people's they have parts of each other's souls from childhood or like uh, people, I think, from what I've read, are having very different takes on what this relationship is about. Have you been surprised by any of that?
2: Well, I think that, you know, the it's really uh, less of a surprise. And then, if, for example, like I'm re- really curious. Um, I'm at least as curious about what your wife thinks as, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, as uh, what everybody, I think it really does matter uh, where you come from uh, when it comes to your life and your love life. And it's, it's including like, you know, if you're in a... Uh, committed relationship if you are uh, 16 or if you're 16. Mm. I think that so much of it is about uh, who you are as a person and where you are. It's really about timing. I think it is about timing of when you meet this particular movie and it's it's the right thing because the movie is about timing and the movie is about, uh, you know, there there are no villains in the film. I would say that the villains in the film is uh, the 24 years that pass and also the Pacific Ocean. So yeah. <laughs> there's a time and space that I think that we all have to contend with, which is why I think that even though it is about this very particular woman who immigrated from South Korea, um, it actually can feel connected to anybody who has an experience um, leaving a part of themselves either in a place or a time in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's I think the way that the film is very universal.
1: Time is the enemy against us all. Yes. <laughs> and I, lo- I love the way you say there's no villains in it. That's maybe. I just realized when you said it, that's one of the joys of it. There's there's no bad guy or no bad girl in it. You mentioned uh, she's an immigrant. And one thing that I found really striking was, you know, there's this, I would imagine, and I've never done it long term, but there's this tremendous sadness of leaving the place where you grew up. And yet when we encounter her in her 20s, she seems joyful at this new life. And yet there's a sadness. There's a melancholy hue to it. And I guess, you know, maybe that's one of the points of the movies that, you know, I think Bruce Springsteen once said, you know, we have multiple selves and we're trying to figure out who's going to drive the wheel at a particular time. Was that your experience as an immigrant? Because people will know that you're from South Korea, then you move to Canada, then New York.
2: Well, I think that uh, I would say that part of being an immigrant is because uh, the you know, the definition of an immigrant is leaving a place and then often leaving a place permanently. I also, mm. but I also do think that we leave a place permanently in some way regardless. And it can be as something as uh, small as like a Dublin to Galway, right? It can yeah, be something yeah.
1: as small. Nice reference, nice you know? reference.
2: <laughs> or it can be something as like, you know, like maybe you're a chef before and now you uh, mm. host a radio show. It doesn't actually matter. Yeah. Um uh, what it is, there is always a thing that uh, you know where you leave a place and time, uh, regardless. You know, it's something is something that I know. It's like even if you stay in the same place in the same home for the all of your life, even you uh, were 16 once and now you're not 16 anymore. Whatever mm-hmm. that means, right? So I think yeah. that there is a kind of an amazing thing where you cannot go home again, or a very there is a permanent change in your life. And I think that it is not about uh, being sad about it or being joyous about it, but I think it is uh, both of it. It's so much about acceptance. Because I think Mm. that you can't actually um, – basically, it depends on how you feel. You know, you can feel joyous about it. You can feel sad about it. I think it is up to you. But I do know that there's nothing you can do to stop it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It is going to happen. Uh, You know, like, I am not 16 anymore. And I can never be 16 again. And also, even if I was 16 now, it's going to – the world is different. So what does it mean? I will will never be the 16 year old that I was back when I was 16. I really can never go home again.
1: Tell me this. And again, I'm really keen not to give any spoilers because I went into this knowing very little about it because someone said you have to go to this. It's a great movie and it's a great way to see the movie. But I do have to interview you at the same time. Yeah. The middle arc of the movie where they reconnect and they're on Skype largely. Uh, and I think a lot of people will enjoy that because of lockdown and just what a pain in the ass it was sometimes. But is it true that the glitches that we see in their interaction, you kind of didn't tell them where they were coming? It was almost like ai don't say electric shock therapy, but they <laughs> were not know when the jumps were going to come
2: of course like they didn't know uh how bad the connection was going to be and we were able to sort of control when it when the connection was terrible when the connection was a little bit better mm. and that was a part of the storytelling because that's what's one of the most painful things about uh technology um because i feel like initially the the miracle of uh if you remember the the first time that we were able to do video chat there was an amazing miraculous feeling there was a sci-fi feeling
1: yeah, yeah. like
2: is it amazing that you can reconnect with somebody who is on the other side of the world, and you can see their face and see them smile? And how amazing! But of course, just like most lost long-distance relationships, over time, um, it is going to become more frustrating. Even though technology hasn't changed, but mm. you feel your desire to be feel intimate with this person, or your desire to touch this person, or anything like that, it is going to start to your expectation is going to uh, mm. shift. And then, yeah. some of the same technology is going to pose a bit of an obstacle, even yeah. though initially it was an amazing uh, miracle. It becomes yeah. a really frustrating part of your relationship with that person. So, yeah. I think the thing that I was really interested in the whole time I was working on that section was that I wanted technology to be as frustrating as it is. The glitches, the freezing of the frame. I think those are the things that um, uh, we wanted to get right. And also uh, I was the one who was cueing it and the other actors were not aware when it was going to happen.
1: <laughs> wow. Well, it worked well. You know, it's like Macbeth. I'm nearly afraid to even mention it because I'm on a Zoom call with you in case this all falls <laughs> asunder, but hopefully not. When Song comes to New York, and again... <laughs> Going towards spoilers, so I'm really careful here, but I love the use Mm. of his suitcase Mm. because he's walking around the city and even, you know, when I was a... Young Irish man, I was 19, turning 20, going to New York for the first time. It's amazing and all, but it's kind of fearful or something. This is the place you've dreamed about all your life. And then it's so loud and so brash. And Haysung's suitcase seems to be a crutch to him. And so he's clinging on to this as he walks through the streets. And it's also lashing rain. So you're kind of disappointed for him when he first arrives. Mm-hmm. Was the suitcase, had you got that in your mind for a long time, that this was going to be a, a, a storytelling tool of sorts?
2: Yes, of course, and I think that the the suitcase is such a uh, sign of somebody who's a tourist in a place. Mm, right? It's like yeah. when you see somebody with the suitcase in the street, you just assume that that's a tourist because that yeah. is the way to mark them. I really wanted um, uh, Hesong's uh, suitcase to be a, a player in it. You know, I was thinking about the uh, the sound design for the suitcase so much that was something <laughs> that me and my sound designer were talking about a lot. And also, we were it, it took we were um, you know, we're trying to find a perfect suitcase for it, you know? So yeah. I think that it is absolutely a part of the storytelling because yeah. it's actually a part of uh, Hesong. Hesong isn't somebody who lives here, right? Hesong yeah. is somebody who is about to take the suitcase, load it up, and about to go to the airport. So I think that really is the um, the um importance of the, of the yeah.
1: yeah. I was fascinated to read about during lockdown, you and... Forgive me if I have this wrong, but you basically did a production of Chekhov's The Seagull yes. through the prison of Sims, the computer game Sims Four, on a streaming service. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! I suppose the obvious <laughs> question is why or why not? But uh... <laughs> yeah,
2: well, I mean, I what, think- how did that come about? Well, I think it was uh, uh, a commission from New Theatre Workshop. They were asking uh, a lot of. Uh, a lot of us, uh, folks in the New York theater scene, to basically, uh, do some pieces for them because their season was, of course, uh, shut down. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I think there was a lot of interest in like a Zoom plays at the time. But I think yeah. that um, something that I felt like, uh, was a really interesting like live performance is uh, I was watching a lot of video game streaming, which was a lot okay. of uh, it's a, it's about the Zoom performance. It's a, uh, it's about the live performance of the. Uh, of the video games and I was just like well this is actually a live per- it's a kind of a durational live performance that these uh streamers are doing uh every day for like 10 hours a day and yeah. I think that I always also felt that The Sims 4 was very Chekhovian because it is just okay breathing and breathing and uh social relationships that's it you know and yeah. there's some okay. philosophy in that and I think that really felt uh, connected. And I think I really wanted to try it. And it was yeah. a good time. Yeah.
1: Wow. Well, listen, I'm going to let you go because I see people moving in the background. Just in closing, I just want to say I love this film. And I don't want to ask you about Oscar buzz or any of that stuff, but you must be thrilled at the reception it's getting because you know you make a movie and you know as well as i do they go out into the world and sometimes they they just go nowhere this is going lots and lots of places from dublin to galway and in between all the be <laughs> urging people to watch it but you must be floating with the reception this film's getting
2: Yes, I mean, do you see me, uh, you know, <laughs> a few feet off the ground? It is so amazing. I think that I'm just so happy uh, about uh, how my first movie is going. And I, mm-hmm. I really have, uh, I have no complaints, you know, because <laughs> everything is so wonderful. But I do think that, um, uh, you know, it's still an independent film that needs word of mouth yeah. and for people yeah. to talk about it positively and recommend, like your friend who, uh, you know, uh, who said you should go see it. I think it's like that is such an important part of mm-hmm. the movie Uh Uh, living in the cinemas and being seen in the cinemas. And I think to me, uh, so any kind of a positive buzz about it, I think is just nothing but uh, my dream. It's amazing.
1: Wonderful. Well, listen, thank you very much for talking to me. I will do my bit to fly the flag for it. Thanks a million. (gasps) Thank you so much. That is Celine's song there, talking to me about her glorious movie, Past Lives, which I think is the best movie of the year so far. It is in cinemas now as we speak. Go and see it. Up next, Chris Wasser has the week's new releases. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to the week's new releases, although we will be discussing past lives again because arts critic and film critic Chris Wasser has seen that. But also he has seen what fortunately or unfortunately some might say is the big new release of the week, The Nun 2, a horror, slightly thriller kind of thing that was huge the first time it was out in The Nun. To tell us more, standing by is Chris. Chris, hello, how are you?
3: John, I'm well. How are you?
1: Very well. I want to tell you something. I'm barely aware of the existence of the first movie, The Nun, despite the fact that I present a film show. But reading about it this morning, this was a movie that was huge, uh, even though it may have passed plenty of people by.
3: Yeah, it was massive. Um, And the funny thing is that I saw The Nun in a cinema and I can barely remember what happened in it, or indeed what happened at the end of it, to give us a second instalment. Um, and what I mean by that is, I thought I thought the demon Valak, I thought the evil nun was vanquished, and I thought yeah. that was the end of that. But no, if if something makes enough money, as John Carpenter always says, you know, the big bad will always come back. Uh, <laughs> with, the, with the with the nun, this is nine films into with the nun two. We're nine films into the Conjuring universe. That is just outrageous to me that this franchise. Has had the legs that it has and that people are you know going out and spending a fortune on on, you know to make these films but it's it's also making a fortune at the box office because i've always kind of considered these horrors as and i know this might sound a little bit cruel but they're kind of horrors for people who don't really like horrors and what i mean by that is you know they're not they're not in any way there's no real terror they are quite mm. suspenseless. They're quite, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of, it's supermarket horror. Everything is just packaged and boxed in a way to kind of, you know, it, it, it's advertised as something that should scare you. But when you're watching it, that's not really the case. Have you seen many of them yourself?
1: No, no I want, I, I've seen a few of the conjurings and I just want to say, you said there, yeah, the conjuring universe. So we should say for people, the non character first appeared in the conjuring. And this is literally part of the conjuring universe
3: yes god forbid we should uh, confuse people when it comes to the ins and outs and all the supporting players in the conjuring universe the conjuring universe actually tells the stories of ed and lorraine isn't it the uh the the paranormal investigators you know these people were actually real people but the conjuring universe uh which is produced by warner and also produced by james wan um it's you know it kind of uh dresses up some of their real life investigations and turned them into you know this very successful sequence of horror pictures the other
1: thing about it that i wanted to just say en route to reviewing the nun too is that when i mentioned this has made lots of money i'm aware of the fact that the lead actress who plays the nun is now suing the film company warner because she wants to she basically wants a bigger cut of the merchandise that uses her image so like this has been huge in those terms
3: yeah, and you know, look if if Bonnie Ahrens, who is the performer, who sorry, you know, Bonnie is, is, Harris, yes, if, if 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 she's the face of the nun, and she was also, you know, if she was just given a basic, you know, wage to play the part in this film, if she was not given something for, you know, for the rights for her, to use her image in all of the marketing and all of the posters and all the merchandise, well then she should look for some of the money because this this film has just like the first one was made for something like twenty million. And gross uh, 300, 300 million at the box office. Again, you can tell from the look and feel and the sound of the second one that they're doing this on a low budget, and it's going to make a fortune because, as I say, people just love these things. And with the yeah. non and with Annabelle, what you have is films wh- where you you take where the studio has taken the evil entities from the Conjuring films with Ed and Lorraine. You know that's uh, Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson. Uh, whereas the Conjuring films follow follow uh, those two. We have the you know the Annabelle films and the non films. They follow, as I say, the evil entities that they were investigating. So the first time around in the original non picture, you had a film that is set in the early 20th century, uh, sometime around the 1950s, where a sister Irene, who's actually played by T- Tessa Formiga, who is, of course, the daughter of Vera Formiga, um, she was sent out to investigate you know, these so-called uh, uh, hauntings. By this demon Valak, uh, aka this evil nun, causing all sorts of havoc, all sorts of trouble for everyone. And with you know the uh, the assistance of of Morris, who's the handsome French psychic, uh, they you know successfully vanquish the demon. This time around, uh, Sister Irene is only you know horrified to discover that you know Valak may be back. Um, and it looks as though Valak's been up to her usual tricks. She's actually been killing priests and nuns in uh, some far off region in France. And a bunch of you know uh, uh, yappy greedy priests. You know they they they're, they're not interested in investigating or kind of you know standing before the demon valak so they send off sister irene because they know look you got him you got her once you can maybe get her again so she goes off to this boarding school where it looks as though valak has been causing all sorts of trouble and here's the good coincidence her old pal frenchy aka morris who's played by jonas bloco he is working as a caretaker in the school and he might in fact be possessed by valak and he doesn't seem to know it
1: okay okay right. so you know this woman is going to challenge evil uh with her godly powers or whatever so you could say you know oh there's something akin to the exorcist in this but i'm sensing that in terms of the quality you feel this is about as far from the exorcist as you're going to get
3: uh, well actually no i did think of the exorcist during this film i actually thought of john Borman's uh, uh first exorcist sequel because for an hour i was thinking i i, I don't think there's ever been a horror since the Exorcist too, that has struggled so hard to justify its existence, where wow. you that have was called the struggle-
1: Heretic, I think, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah, the Heretic. Yeah. Um, awful fit. Worth a watch just to see how how bad it is. Now I'm in no way comparing the original non-film to the Exodus in terms of quality. I just meant that the non-film, you know, which was actually terrible itself, uh, it had a beginning, a middle, and end, and it built up this big bad that it eventually showed you. It showed you all the power that Valak had, and it showed you how Valak could be defeated by, you know, using the blood of Jesus, the actual blood of Jesus, John, to defeat this demon, and that w- that was the end of that. There is no need then for another sequel, and we can't mm. be afraid of something that we know too much about, you know, that we've seen too much of, that we know how to defeat this thing. So that's the biggest problem starting out. So how do we get around that? Well, it seems as though the director, Michael Chavis, who has directed films in the Conjuring universe before, you think he would have a bit more experience. You think he would know how these things work because, you know, there are some Conjuring films that are okay. He doesn't seem to know what he's doing here. And, it, and it's, it's as though he knows we're, we, we've written ourselves and we've talked ourselves into a corner. So let's just, let's just fill up our film full of jump scares let's just make it like a cinematic ghost train and it doesn't matter what order those scares are in and it doesn't matter you know forget about tension forget about suspense let's just go noisy and loud and obnoxious with this thing and that's such a shame that's not that's not real horror um unfortunately people will i, I can i can see this again making a fortune I just hope that people will start at some stage to get a little bit tired of these things because I just wanted more imagination from this thing. I wanted some original ideas. I wanted better performances. Now it's not all bad. I should mention uh Dubliner, Caitlin Rose Downey is in this. Uh, she's made a, a few films now. Uh, I think she's around 14 or 15. She is quite a talented youngster and she is head and shoulders above everyone else in this film, but above the adults. Um, mm. And I mean, the adults are trying but they're they're sort of on autopilot you can kind of sense that everyone knows how thin a story and a plot they're working with um with Caitlin rose downey maybe she knows that too but she's giving a great performance here so i can i i'm I'm hoping and i can see big things ahead for her for everyone else in this thing they're just doing the same thing they did last time last time around they were in a messy film but at least they were having some fun with it this time they look a little bored and that feeling is infectious
1: but if this is a horror that is genuinely not scary and you're saying this is still gonna make lots of money, you think, what are people gonna get out of it?
3: Frustration? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean when whenever Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga are in these things, the actual conjuring films, not the spin-offs, I've had yeah. some fun with because I quite like that pairing of Wilson with Farmiga. I quite like just you know, Patrick Wilson in 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 horror. But with these ones... I'm not sure. I, I think maybe, you know, I'm saying it's going to make more, I think maybe as well, some people who are fans of these things, they might go out to see the nun too and go, wow, there really is nothing here. Um, and yeah. that might, you know, that might challenge that might encourage the filmmakers to try something new, to look inside that horror toy box and say, right. Okay. We've used Annabelle. We've used the nun. It's time for something new. Um, yeah. and I, I just, I just think it's, it's badly needed because there's no, it is. It's like, it's the equivalent of being on a ghost train and you can see all the scares are signposted before they come. I, I just, i i was bored to distraction and and that is not something you should be during a horror film there should at least even be one good scare in there john and there's not
1: yeah okay i'm nearly afraid to ask but what will you say stars wise for the nun too
3: i'd say you know look it's a good four or five star performance from caitlin rose downey but it's it's a one star for the film um the other thing i should have mentioned was that you know a thing that a horror film should do is, is it should scare you know and excite audiences another thing it needs to do is it needs to make some sort of sense there is no logic to how the demon works in this thing there's no logic to how it's vanquished it does not make any sense whatsoever and that i think will frustrate even the biggest fans of the series
1: yeah, fair enough Well look, despite desperately trying to fly the Irish flag For yeah. some homegrown talent It's one star for The Nun too. That's the first time Chris, in my dealings with him Has given one star, so that's pretty bad Let's, God help us, take a clip of The Nun 2 Sister Something doesn't feel
3: right I think like there's something here That's not meant to be Was once an angel
0: who was punished by God and has returned for you and for what you hold most dear.
1: So that is the one star, none too, according to Chris Wasser. Now we move, and I should say that's on release from this Friday, the 8th of September, in all cinemas. If you don't believe Chris, or I don't know, you're into being frustrated in the cinema, why not check <laughs> it out? Now, something very different and we have talked a le- about it a lot so far in the show if you've been listening earlier is Past Lives I've said it's probably the best movie I've seen all year really quickly it is about two young South Korean children who are torn apart albeit for very amiable reasons when the 12 year old Nora moves from South Korea to America and she reconnects with Haesung in her 20s and then later in her 30s it is a beautiful story all about life life's chances and what happens when you meet people from your past all about the immigrant experience as well i just think it is told beautifully it is a simple gorgeous story chris what did you think of it
3: yeah i agree i thought this was gorgeous john and it's weird i can't remember the last time a film like this uh had such a big effect on me and that stayed with me long after the credits rolled and also i can't remember the last time we saw a romantic drama of this depth and quality on the big screen, because these kinds of films, you know, sometimes don't make it to the big screen anymore. Usually we're, you know, we're, we, we get a lot of these kinds of things on streamers, but I'm very happy to have seen this in a cinema and that it's actually getting a cinema release. Um, and it's weird. There comes a point in past lives where, although you are dedicated and just committed to the story of Hei Sung and Nora, and it's just beautiful to watch their relationship unfold over these 24 years, heartbreaking in some cases. Um, you are committed to that relationship, but it, the film casts this funny spell where it starts simultaneously having you think about your own relationships, you know, and that could be for, for you know, for different people that could be past and, and current, you know, friendships and relationships. Um, it could be what, you know, you could start to think of where you are now. You might think of a path that you could have taken 10 or 12 years before. You just start to kind of, relate to the story in a way that you don't usually kind of relate to these kind of romantic dramas or comedies. Um, it's not so much a comedy, although it is, it, there, there are some, some very funny moments in this film. And I think a lot of them come from Arthur now, an awful lot of the uh, talk and the buzz around this film centrals on the lead performances It centrals on these two characters, Hey and Nora, and they are just, just beautiful characters and brilliantly portrayed. How did you find Arthur portrayed by John McGarrow? Because I, I had an awful lot of time for this guy. I yeah. thought
1: he was great because I thought when he first enters, you think he may be underwritten as Nora's husband, but then he grows into something absolutely wonderful. And the point that you made about, you know, you started looking back at relationships, all relationships, romantic and otherwise, that's exactly what the director, Celine, said to me earlier in the show, that I, I was saying to her that, you know, I was really changing my mind and thinking in all sorts of different ways about what this relationship between Nora and Sung is about. And she said, that's what the magic of the film is is that we almost refigure our own relationships through their yeah. prism, you know? So I'm glad you had, you had a similar experience and I think you put your finger on it. I think that's why this is going to be such a talked about movie because, you know, it, I don't know, that Patrick Abner thing reminds us we're not alone in our loneliness yeah, or something that's like right. that. Arthur, I thought he was brilliant as well as as Nora's husband and the role he has. Also, to I applaud
3: Celine Song for that wonderful opening scene, which is a lovely way to set the tone where we open in this New York bar and there's strangers that, you know, whose faces we never see. But we just hear these voices wondering as they sit across these three characters. That's Song Nora and Arthur at 4 a.m. in the New York bar. Who are these guys? Which of them are romantically linked? Do you think they're friends? Do you think they're visiting from another place? And maybe they're a couple, or maybe they're a couple. And that's sort of a way of letting us know that, you know, even these three people are going to wonder, you know, over their their entire lives what they kind of mean to each other.
1: And also, I want to steer you clear from any kind of spoilers because at their heart, there is a beautiful will they, won't they in this, which you'll have to pay the ticket admission to find out. But one thing I just want to get your take on as well, like I was saying to Celine that, you know, People can get lost In discussing camera angles And all that kind of stuff But to me This is 101 Beautiful filmmaking She shoots it With some scenes That will last So long in your memory Like when they Leave each other as kids For the first time Views of the Statue of Liberty Like I just thought The camera work Like that can often Leave people cold And sometimes people are like What are you talking about It's just a movie But I think if you see this movie You will get what it is About how sometimes Filmmakers are just oh, great with a camera.
3: No film by a first time writer director whose background in theater should be this accomplished. I've like, I just, I take that yeah. after it's just, a gorgeous piece of work it is so beautifully written so wonderfully realized and the dialogue is so natural and also there's an awful lot of space for silence too which is which is real life you know sometimes people do walk down the road hand in hand or you know in the case of Nora and hey hey song you know they kind of they they want to maybe take it a bit further one stage but sometimes people do walk in silence and and there's an awful lot going on around yeah. them and you can enjoy that um but i just i, I i'm just blown away at how amazing it looks You know, you think, given that Celine Song's theater background, it's going to be a very small, intimate piece. And sometimes it is. But then you have the scenes in New York where you're thinking, well, that looks amazing. Uh, That soundtrack is astonishing. That uh, You know, the cinematography is gorgeous. Um, I really loved it. It reminded me so much, Sean, although it is a different beast, it reminded me a lot lot of um, Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy um and this kind of you know breezy two people walking around talking about love and life and everything in between sometimes things get a little bit silly sometimes things get a little bit philosophical you don't know where the conversation or where the relationship is going to go that's the before films for me and 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 in some scenes that's this film you know what that's not a bad comparison i love those films
1: well, it's funny you say that. We get on about most things. I always find the before movies, the sunrise ones, slightly pretentious. No. I'm sorry to say. I know, I know. But just in terms of movies we're reminded of I actually mentioned to Selene, I was thinking Brief Encounter, Shades of Loss, Loss and Translation as well. to, to, to an extent. Uh I just thought, and we won't argue about Richard (laughs) later. I do do find him a great filmmaker, but I think this may be the best film I've seen all year. So I'm going to give it five stars. I'm wondering, because I found it faultless. There was nothing about it I didn't like. The ending, the beginning, the acting, the directing, I didn't think any of it was wasted. So I'm giving it five stars, because to me, it's kind of a perfect film. I'd love to know what you'd give it. No No pressure pressure at
3: all, John. Uh, well, and we'll talk about the before films again uh, there's not a note out of place <laughs> there's yes, not will. a note out of place in past lives um, it's quite witty, it's quite poetic, uh, novelistic at times uh, rich in ideas, as I said mm. beautiful to look at, wonderfully performed, brilliantly directed That it, it, we're ticking every box there, it is one of the most life-affirming, gorgeous films that I've seen in a cinema this year and I would happily go and see it again later on, um, it's the full five
1: Oh, we have it, we're in consensus Well that's the first time you've given anything a 1 and a 5 So it is a week of extremes That is 5, a resounding 5 from Chris Wasser and me for Past Lives Which is in cinemas from Thursday of this week for some strange reason The 7th of September But me and Chris are saying you should go and see it You should definitely skip none too Up next, Paddy Cullivan on his favourite movie Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite film. Paddy Cullivan is a satirist, comedian, writer, speaker, MC, and of course, musician. He previously f- fronted uh, what was, I suppose, best known as RTE's Late Late Show's house band, The Cannonborg Quartet. Lately, he's become something of a historical entertainer. More of that anon. He joins me now to chat about his favourite movie. Paddy, hello, sir.
0: How are you doing?
1: Very well. So listen, your favorite movie choice, it's never been chosen before. So will you tell our listeners what it is and why?
0: I'm kind of amazed by that, John, I have to say. It's the 1984 movie Amadeus, which is the story of the rivalry between Salieri and Mozart, played by F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hultz. And it's just, it's renowned as one of the greatest films of all time, but it's about music and I think that's why I love it most of all.
1: So tell listeners, because there'll be plenty of people, especially back in 1984, not to age, you or I, but what's going on? It, it, uh, Mozart has a, an enemy of sorts.
0: Well, it, it starts off in a, in, a, in a kind of a, you know, a hospital where Salieri's is an elderly man and he's talking to a priest. And then he reveals that he was the man who might have murdered uh, Mozart, uh, which is something we don't know. And it was written, it's from a play by Peter Schaefer. And it's loosely, but, you know, it's it's based on this play. It's, it's you know, it's not completely historically accurate, but it's a fascinating entrance into this amazing life of Mozart. And F. Murray Abraham, who's a very, de- you know, Salieri was a very devoted Italian composer. He was the court composer to Emperor Franz Joseph. Uh, this is the 1700s. And then this young upstart called Mozart, who was a child star, enters the scene and just blows everybody away with his immense talent. But what disgusts Salieri most of all is that he's, a big drink and womanizing, fun maniac as well. So mm. it's it's a kind of it's, it's almost like a rock and roll movie, uh, but yeah. very much about classical music. But what what really it captures more than any movie of all time is is both the petty rivalries in music, um, the fact that you know it, it's music and art are not necessarily the preserve of kind of saintly, you know, quiet, thoughtful people. That sometimes just crazy. Fun people can also have this touch of genius to them. Mm. And most of all, it, it analyzes the music. And of course, it's full of the music and it looks absolutely beautiful. The cinematography, uh, all the Mozart that's played throughout it. It's stunning. And, and I mean, it, it really is an intriguing, wonderful story from beginning to end.
1: Yeah. And is there, because it's a long time since I saw it, is there, without giving a spoiler, some implication that Mozart was on the take in terms
0: of musical ideas that he may have stole from people? It's no, no. I mean, Mozart Mozart was completely, I mean, a genius. And I mean, this is and, and this is, I suppose, what it's about. And, you know, the reason I like it more than any other music films, I don't think music is captured in films at all. I think that mm. there's only two movies that ever really captured the music business for me. One is Spinal Tap, and, is, <laughs> and the other is Amadeus. And the thing is that Mozart's music, you know, my, my dad was a classical composer, Tom Cullivan, so I grew up with a lot of this music, and then, you know, one of my party pieces as a teenager was to play Mozart's, you know, Concerto in C on piano. Yeah. Um, and they say that when you listen to Mozart, um, it does something to your brain and almost enhances your <laughs> intellect, you know? Uh, one of the great scenes in it is where Salieri tries to sing some melodies of his own, and the priest can't remember mm-hmm. he, he, he just can't recognize them at all, and then he goes, "Oh, do you know this one?" and he goes den 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 den, and the priest is able to finish the entire thirty two bar phrase "As you could as I could." It shows the absolute genius of Mozart's ability to write melodies but but Tom Holtz's character throughout is absolutely hilarious; he's crazy. He's awful. I mean, he makes fun of Salieri's music, um, but he also considers him a friend. What it also shows is the snobbery and snootiness of, of let's say, the, the, the scene at that time and how yeah. very like today where, you know, um, he plays his piece. It's perfect. He knows it's perfect. And, uh, you know, the court composers and the, the emperor comes up with his assistance and, you know, they, they ask him uh, uh, and he asks, what did you think, emperor? Uh, and the emperor doesn't know what to say, P- played brilliantly by Geoffrey Jones, by the way, uh, you uh-huh. know, Bueller, one of the great actors. Yeah. I mean, the the cast throughout are stunning. But, but he asks one of his assistants, oh, this too many notes, you know? So critics come in for a beating, rivalry comes in for a beating, mediocrity comes in for a beating in it. You know, these are things that are never discussed because we're all meant to think that art and music is rarefied and we're all meant to be, you know, non-objective and very nice to each other. Mm. And it kind of shows this beautiful thing, but the, also that there's not a lot of money in it. And in fact, mm. one of the, you know, one of the great old things about music and art is that, you know, they always say that other people talk about art. Artists talk about money um, because we're always trying to get money together. And, you know, what did you get paid? Did you manage to get paid at all? And the best scene in it is where the Magic Flute, one of his great operas, you know, the people start to love Mozart's music. So he goes down to the local theater, you know, where Simon Callow plays this promoter and, and actor and Hans Mozart a big... Bag of gold coins and says, "You made a fortune tonight." And Mozart's like, "This is great." He prefers when the local people are doing it and not the snooty court, you know. And and it, it just yeah. it brings in all those aspects of art and money and music. I, I find so many musical films are about you know the guy who's an alcoholic and yeah, the, you know, the, the, the womanizing, and then nothing, none of nothing of the art is in there. I mean, I love Oliver Stone and I love The Doors film, but you know, people always forget about Jim Marsden He made five albums in the six albums in five years there's a huge amount of work going on it shows the work as well there's a, there's a scene near the end where it actually shows the process of composition salieri comes to the sick mozart and you know you know he says uh you, you must finish your work because salieri wants to rob it for himself i think that's where you got the idea that it might have been um mozart yeah. stealing ideas it's actually salieri who wants to take his last work yeah. make it his own um, and, and in this scene, it, it's between Hulz and Abraham, who were both nominated for Best Actor in the Academy Awards, um, with F. Murray Abraham winning, which I think is, was a sin against Hultz. Uh, they should have both won. But um, the, it, this is where Mozart, from, the, from his deathbed, dictates the music. And you can actually yeah. see how it's coming out of his brain. And, and no one, I think, in film has ever captured composition on screen, bar until we saw Get Back recently. You know, where yeah. Paul McCartney literally writes, get back in front of our eyes. So Milos Foreman, who made this, a genius, you know, made one of the cuckoo's nest. But this really is his finest hour. And, and it, it's kind of a, it's a powerhouse. I think it's because it's a music film that it's not included generally in people's lists. Although many people would say it's one of the greatest films of all time. But I certainly, for me, it touches me in every single way.
1: Yeah, that's brilliantly described. You know, I had a philosophy professor once who said to us that uh, when bank managers get together, all they talk about is philosophy. And when philosophy professors get together, all they talk about is how little much, how little money they make. Uh, and I was also also reminded of Leonard Cohen saying, you know, there's no music business without commerce. So not, not to Freudian it up on you, but you mentioned this one and obviously Spinal Tap. Are you of the view that the music business is a pretty rotten place?
0: Oh, God, it's, it's absolutely desperate. And especially my experience of, of gatekeeping and of, um, I mean, I was, I was in, in uh, I've benefited from, you know, people being into my work and putting my work on, but also I've seen how it can be shut down terribly. And this, this movie is full of that. This movie is full of opportunities being shut down because of petty rivalry, petty jealousy. Um, and, and the music business is full of that. I'm sorry to say it. And also, you know, as we've seen with Spotify and everything, like the money is just gone from recording Mm. work so you know like mozart i'm very happy when i get a full house and someone gives me a bag of gold Um, (laughs) but but boy do you have to work for it and yeah it's a pretty rotten business and i suppose the reason spinal tap catches it too because i actually ended up meeting Ozzy Osbourne on the late late show when i was there and i was going like you've always said you couldn't watch spinal tap and he goes "Yeah, yeah it was too real um, because it reflected reality so much, you know, getting lost backstage and all the, the you know, turning up to an empty venue. And it's, yeah. you know, I told them to put Spinal Tap above Puppet Show. And, and in the yeah. same way, Amadeus captures in a very playful way. I find in Ireland, we really treat the music business and the art business like it's some kind of holy, you know, religious institution. And actually, it's far more fun than that. But it, and it's, yeah. bit, it's far more brutal than that as well.
1: Yeah, and come here just en route to what you're doing now. But in terms of your own musicianship, you're still very much a jobbing musician, though, are you?
0: Oh, very much. I mean, you know, we just did the Electric Picnic and we covered an entire Prince album, Parade. And, and when and
1: you say we, you're referring to
0: the Camembert Quartet. Oh, we're always yeah. a, we're always a going concern. And yeah. then, um And then we did a you know whole hour of our own music, which was a kind of a satirical Frank Zappa type stuff we did in the early two thousands. So. We're, I'm always doing music as well as everything else. And there's music in my own historical shows, which, again, some are based in the 18th century. So I'm, and I grew up in a Georgian house in Dublin, so I suppose Amadeus hits me on all sorts of levels. Plus, it's filmed in Prague in the 80s. And, you know, I went to Prague in 1991, and I, I, I realized the communists had just left, but they had maintained the city center of Prague so beautifully because it, it was a kind of a jewel in the communist crown as well as anything else. Mm. So you see that in Amadeus and a bit like Barry Lyndon by Kubrick, it's all kind of lit by candlelight and also you feel like you're in the 18th century when you're watching it.
1: Yeah, well, listen. En route to talking about what you're doing now, which I'm keen to plug for you, I was in City West at a large, let's call it corporate event last year, and you guys were playing, and you did a version of Luther Vandross's "Never Too Much," and it was absolutely amazing. I didn't tell you that before we came on, but I never thought. I hope it's not pejorative to say a white man could do such a good Luther Vandross impression, but you did, and then some. So, listen, tell Thank
0: me, you, that's but you know, I have a beautiful falsetto for some reason and maybe it's because of the accident i don't want to talk about the accident but um it, it was great and uh, i'm joking i didn't have an accident I just didn't have a great falsetto like that's why we're covering a whole prince album and funny yeah one, prince and mozart are kind of like in the same category for me you know
1: yeah yeah but which prince album did you did you cover
0: we did parade which is a really different oh album. wow yeah. now of the times would be even harder but parade was perfect length and. I mean, you know, he had that kind of orchestral idea as well. And I just love it. But Luther Vandross, amazing as well.
1: Yeah. Listen, so th- tell me this. Now, you're currently touring these various shows, The Death of Michael Collins, The Death of Wolf Tone, And they seem to be taking, I don't want to say, you know, counterfactual views of history, but certainly putting, you know, the cat amongst the pigeon in terms of what might have happened to these great Irish people. But you're doing it with a series of slides and stand-up. And uh, tell us what's going on in these shows.
0: Well, it's even worse than that, John. It's the murder of Wolf Tone and the murder of Michael Collins. Oh, the
1: just, murder. What did I say?
0: You said the death. Oh, and, sorry. And I suppose it's a bit like the storyline of Amadeus where, you know, did Salieri actually murder Mozart? That was a rumor for many, many years. Mm. Um, no, it's, it's not counterfactual. I mean, I tell you, I've, I've upset a lot of people and a lot of old friends yes. in, the, in the academic world and stuff. But I've, I've had as many people say, well done, Paddy. We're all working with the same sources here. My yeah. problem is I don't trust people as much as they do. And I have found that that with the sources that people are using for their official history, newspaper reports, witness statements, all of this kind of thing, it always ends up being like the government who are making the statements and writing the history and owning the newspapers. And in the murder wolf tone, this especially is the case. Uh, There's no one to speak up for tone in that. And then with the murder Michael Collins, I mean it's a bizarre story of there being no inquest, no inquiry, no evidence, no ballistic, no forensic evidence, no auto- no autopsy that we can find. And he doesn't even have a death cert, And yet this mm-hmm. is the most important Irishman of all time. So I've got back to all the very same sources everybody has. I'm not making anything up. Uh, but for me, it, it just does not add up. And I think mm-hmm. in, in Ireland a bit, it's a bit like the way we treat the music biz that we want to be reverential and we we kind of want to speak well of the dead and all of this type of thing. And that's, that's a kind of a, it's a nice part of Irish personalities and, and nature and to believe people. But I have to take a bit of a more cynic, maybe because I'm half American myself, I take a little bit of a more cynical approach and I think, you know, okay, that person said that that's what happened, but is that really what happened? And, and again, you know, that's, that's, but these stories are very entertaining. I, it's a 90 minute show of, of two halves. I have songs involved. I've written a bit Original music, you know, one one song is called Bail na Blah Blah Blah" because of all the the rumor, the rumors going around about what happened, and you know I have another song called "Both Sides Now," which is dedicated to Irish academia in the Wolf Tone Show because you know oh, okay because they take such an objective view, you know you're, you're kind of embar- so embarrassed you don't know where to look. I mean, the, 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 if these people would like have have a festival for Oliver Cromwell if they could call Cromfest. I mean. They're so objective. I mean, in my world, I mean, take the movie world, John, like I grew up on Star Wars, you know, and um, yes. I would always say that my view of Irish history is a bit similar to Star Wars. You've got the rebels and you've got the empire. And why are the empire the baddies? Well, the clue is in the word empire. <laughs> mm. and
1: just just now this is not a history show and we don't want to go down a rabbit course, hole here but in your show the, the murder of Wolf Tone which I incorrectly call the killing of but you are intimating that what we've been told historically isn't the case and he was in fact murdered
0: yes um, having if that's not a spoiler but the clue's in the title so it is in the title and uh, I mean it, 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 supposedly he had did, done himself in with a razor or yeah. attempted to do with a razor left in the cell by his brother six weeks before uh, and you know, lingers for eight days and then dies in, in the prison. Uh, but he has no visitors. Any letters he writes are, are fake and has been proven to be fake, different handwriting, the razors never shown up. And then unlike what happened to those in those days of the 18th century, where if you did do yourself in, you were buried with a stake to the heart in, in unconsecrated ground, he is actually buried in consecrated ground in Bowdenstown. And there's a kind of a public struggle between his jailer Sandy's and Cornwallis, who's running Ireland at the time. And again, it's a bit like the Amadeus story. You know, it, It's dramatic, it's of that era, and it's kind of cruel. But Cornwallis wins out. And, and obviously, it looks like the big kahuna, the guy running Ireland at the time, doesn't really believe the suicide story. So th- there's a lot of drama in it. And I think what happens is, unless you go back and explore it as I have and kind of dig back to the original sources and then find a different story, uh, people just kind of accept what they're told. But actually, it's far more dramatic and interesting than that. Again, there's a movie in it.
1: Mm, fascinating. So, listen, in closing, then, if people want to see your show, The Murder of Wolf Tone, or indeed The Murder of Michael Collins, where can they and how can they find information about upcoming dates?
0: Uh, they can go to paddycullivan.com, and I also have a show called Year of the French and The Murder of John Moore. What I call them is controversial titles that allow you to come in and enter the story, and whether you agree with me or not, it's a fascinating roller coaster ride. Imagine a kind of a you know, a a true crime podcast on stage with loads of images, songs, and you're actually surrounded by real breathing people unlike we were for two years during COVID.
1: Wow. Well, it sounds like a strange thing to say, but keep on killing. His favourite movie (laughs) is Amadeus. Paddy Cullivan, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, John.
1: Astounding.
0: It was actually, it was beyond belief. These were first and only drafts of music. But they showed no corrections of any kind. Not one. He had simply written down music already finished in his head. Page after page of it, as if he were just taking dictation.
1: A little flavour there of Amadeus from 1984, the favourite movie of Paddy Cullivan. And you can find out a lot more about Paddy Cullivan's history shows on paddycullivan.com. His next one is the 14th of September in the Balor art centre in Bally Buffet and that's the murder of Wolf Thone and my thanks to him and also my thanks to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show this week as she does every week and to all of you for listening and indeed getting in touch and if you want to get in touch I just remind you it's John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com the show is available as always as a podcast first on Friday on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm next week on the show I'm going to be talking to Patrick Hilty and Shauna Kerslake about their new movie *Bally Walter*, which is going to be in cinema soon. Enjoy the remainder of your weekend and have a safe week ahead and I'll talk to you next week.